If y'all would, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. As we continue our study through 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4, and I'll begin reading in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Our Father, we ask that in this moment, through Your Spirit, You would quiet our hearts before You. Lord, that we might listen to Your Word and be changed by it. Lord, we can be changed by Your words because it's not just black words on white pages. But through the power of Your Spirit, You breathe those words into us. You write them on our hearts. We can hear Jesus speaking and transforming us. We ask that that would happen in this moment. Lord, may my words fall to the ground and blow away. And Lord, may your words remain. May they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Rosaria Butterfield in her book, the Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She describes her life as this, quote, a radical lesbian feminist professor. And she was. At the age of 36, she was already tenured as a professor at Syracuse University, uh, where she taught English and women's studies. She was a leading voice in the lesbian and the gay community, speaking at rallies, leading advocacy groups. She would openly mock Christians, thinking them to be ignorant, closed-minded, not to mention judging and hateful. Uh, Christians were, in her words, bad Republican or bad. They were bad thinkers who voted Republican, homeschooled their children, and refused to inoculate their children against diseases. They were dangerous because they made immoral choices, always claiming that God was on their side. Um, After Pat Robertson made his famous statement at the um, Republican National Convention claiming this, quote, feminism encourages women to leave their husbands, kill their children, practice witchcraft, destroy capitalism, and become lesbians. She thought she'd write a book about this. Uh, So she thought she would write a book about the religious right. And it was actually during her research in writing this book that God changed her life. She had just written and had published in a local newspaper a critique of the Promise Keepers movement. And uh, she was receiving a bunch of letters, a lot of fan mail and a lot of hate mail. But the letters kept pouring in. And what she would do is she made two stacks on her desk, one for all of the hate mail and one for all of the fan mail. And she did this for weeks 
But she got one letter from a pastor that she couldn't put in either stack. This pastor was not hateful. He was not arrogant. Yet he was very firm in his convictions and he asked some questions of her to think about. And so she said this letter sat on her desk for an entire week and she was a very organized person. And she just, she, it drove her crazy. She didn't know what to do with it. So finally she decided, I'm just going to have to call this guy and have to call this pastor. And so she called up Pastor Ken. When she called him up, Pastor Ken was quick to invite her over for dinner. Said, come to my house. Uh, let me and my wife, Floyd, talk with you and you can explore those questions. I, I don't like to, to use long quotes, but uh, let me quote to you in her own words from her book. We had a nice chat on the phone. And Pastor Ken invited me to dinner at his house to explore some of these questions. Before we ended our phone call, almost as an afterthought, Pastor Ken also said that if I was afraid to come to some stranger's house, that he and his wife would meet me at a restaurant. I thought that was very considerate of him. Almost chivalrous. I was comfortable with the idea of going to his house. The gay and lesbian community is also a community, quote, given to hospitality. I honed my hospitality gifts, serving pasta to drag queens and queers, people like me. I prefer discussing matters of disagreement around a private table. Plus, I really wanted to see how Christians lived. I had never seen such a thing. So I took him up on it. I was excited to meet a real born-again Christian and find out why he believed such silly ideas. I assume that this dinner was another aspect of my research. Pastor Ken lived about two miles from my house. His house is also in the university district. I knew exactly where he lived. In fact, his house was on my running route, so I wasn't too nervous about our first meeting. So I went alone. She says that the most memorial part of this meal was Ken's prayer before I had never heard anyone pray to God as if God cared, as if God listened, as if God answered. It was not a pretentious prayer uttered for the heathen at the table to overhear. I have heard a few of those at gay pride marches or in front of planned parenthood clinics. It was a private and honest utterance. I felt as though I was treading on something real, something sincere, something important. Something transparent but illegible to me. Ken made himself vulnerable to me in his prayer by humbling, him, humbling himself before this, quote, God of his. I took note of that. And during our meal, I remember holding my breath and waiting to be punched in the stomach with something grossly offensive. I believed at this time that God was dead and that if he was alive... The fact of poverty, violence, racism, sexism, homophobia, and war was proof that he didn't care about his creation. I believed that religion was, as Marx wrote, the opiate of the masses, an imperialist social construction made to soothe the existential angst of the intellectually impaired. But Ken's God seemed alive, three-dimensional, 
and wise if firm. And Ken and Floyd were anything but intellectually impaired. Our conversation was lively and fun. If Floyd was, quote, a submissive wife, she was also gifted, smart, perceptive, well-read, and a great cook. If Ken was the, quote, Bible-thumping pastor, he was also a good listener, a balanced interpreter, a lover of good poetry and a reader of politics, and a husband who clearly adored, relied upon, and valued highly his wife's counsel. These people simply didn't fit the stereotype, and I simply didn't know what to do with this. Like his letter, Ken wouldn't be filed away easily so that I could just go on with my life. Ken and Floyd did something at the meal that has long that has a long Christian history, but has been functionally lost in too many Christian homes. Ken and Floyd invited the stranger in, not to scapegoat me, but to listen and to learn and to dialogue. Ken and Floyd have a vulnerable and transparent faith. We didn't debate worldview. We talked about our personal truth and about what made us tick. Ken and Floyd didn't identify with me. They listened to me and identified with Christ. They were willing to to walk the long journey to me in Christian compassion. During our meal, they did not share the gospel with me. After our meal, they did not invite me to church. Because of these glaring omissions to the Christian script as as I had come to know it, When the evening ended and Pastor Ken said he wanted to stay in touch, I knew that it was truly safe to accept his open hand. This went on for about two years. After two years of dinners and a growing friendship, uh, Rosaria came to know the Lord. It was through the hospitality of Ken and Floyd that Rosary was able to experience in a tangible way the love of Christ. The key to 21st century evangelism is hospitality. Uh, Let me repeat that. The key to 21st century evangelism is hospitality. Uh, How else are we going to reach people for Christ? You used to be able to set up a tent. You know, you set up a tent, you have a tent revival, and everybody would come. You know, so if I were to do that, you know, across the parking lot in the field there, set up a tent, we were to advertise a revival, do you think that would be a good strategy for bringing people to Christ now? It wouldn't. When the tent revivals no longer worked and the street preachers no longer worked, it was just the handing out of tracts. And then we went from the handing out of tracts to evangelistic events. We rented stadiums and brought in speakers. Hard to do now. Those things rarely work. But but there is a strategy. There's one strategy that the church has always had and that is still effective today. Possibly more effective today than it was 2,000 years ago. And that is hospitality. If you read through your Bible and you look for it, 
you will be surprised at how many times the theme of hospitality comes up. It is not a minor theme in Scripture. Hebrews 13, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Both in 1 Timothy and Paul's letter to Titus, he says that a requirement for being an elder is not only that they teach, but that they are hospitable. Paul in a section of Romans that pretty much... uh, is the entire letter to 1 Peter in a nutshell. In Romans chapter 12, he says this, Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. And of course, we see the, uh, the importance that Peter places on hospitality by the his positioning of this text within his letter and how he he builds up to it. Look at chapter 4, verse 7 again. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Do you remember the story of Jesus? It's in Mark chapter 5. And he encounters the demon-possessed man who he lived among the tombs. People tried to bind him, and he'd always break through the, bind, the binds, and he'd cut himself with stones, and he'd howl at nights. Do you, do you remember that story? It's in Mark 5. And Jesus, he went to this man, and he healed him. And the description is, after this man was healed and the, the demon was cast out, the many demons cast out, he sat down next to Jesus, and he was sober-minded. It's the exact same word that Peter uses here. He was of clear mind. Now let me ask you a question. Be truthful. Do you think it would have been more likely for this man, before he encountered Jesus, to be holding up a sign saying the end is near? Versus after he was healed and the demon was taken out and he was no longer crazy and he was of sound mind holding up a sign saying the end is near. Which do we associate with the crazy person? The possessed person? Well, obviously the one who's preaching the end is near. And Peter says, no. That is the person who is of clear thought. Saying that the end of all things is at hand. Now let me be clear. Jesus told Peter that even he doesn't know when he was going, he's going to return. He also told Peter that it wasn't for Peter to know the times or the season when he was going to return. So Peter is not giving us a date here. That's that's not what Peter is doing. If that was the case, Peter's wrong because it's been about 2,000 years. All right? That's not what he's saying, though. What he is saying is that we are now living in what we would call the last days. That... Think of it this way, we are the last act in the drama that has been unfolding in human history. 
you had creation, then you had the fall, and then you have the call of Abraham, then you have the giving of the law, and then you have God sending all the prophets, and you have the kingdoms there, and then finally you have Jesus, and He lives, and He dies, and He rises again, and now He's ascended on high, and He's given His Spirit to His people who He has made a covenant with, and now this age of the church filled with His Spirit, and all that is left is for Him to return. So so we're in the final act. We're we're in the very end of this great drama that is going through history. And that is what Peter is saying, that the end of all things is at hand. You could also apply this personally. For every person here, the end is near. You live in the shadow of eternity. Someday you will die. Actually, for me, it is even if I die of old age, there is a good chance that there are less days in front of me than there are behind me. I mean, my dad died when he was just 13 years older than me. We, we all live in the shadow of eternity. The end is near. And Peter says that knowing that should sober us up. It should shape the way we live, the way we think. It should shape the way we pray, the way we love, and the way we are hospitable. He's saying, life isn't a joke, okay? It's not a joke. Everything we do at this stage of the game towards the end is of vital importance. We need to be always thinking, thy will be done in every circumstance. We we can't just stroll through life moving from entertainment to entertainment. Always just living for the next big game week to week. Always living to look at our phone for whatever the next decorating tip is. We we are so shallow in what we think about. Peter says, wake up. You're in the last stage of human history. You're living in a dream world. Sober up. There's bigger and better things for us to do. And your prayers need to reflect that. The way you love one another needs to reflect that. The way you're hospitable to one another needs to reflect that. We need to pray as if the end of time was at hand. And when you have that in the forefront of your mind, the petty things you pray about just kind of fade away. And you focus on more weightier matters. Peter actually takes things up a notch now. Up another notch in verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Above all. all He just just gave a pretty big opening statement there where the end of all things is at hand. And now he's like, and above all, above everything, this right here. This is of highest priority. Love one another. Then he says earnestly. In Greek, this word earnestly, it means to stretch out. It's the word that could be used to describe a runner as he's crossing the finish line and he stretches out as hard as he can to finish the race. And Peter says, that's how we love one another. Straining, striving, reaching towards one another in love. Above all, He says, we do this because love covers a multitude of sins. This is another way of saying that love is going to set the stage, 
create the environment for us to forgive one another, be patient with one another, live life with one another. Love is going to set the stage for us to become hospitable people. So after quite a buildup, we now come to hospitality. Peter Ashley, he, he links hospitality and the gifts of the Spirit both within this context of love. We're going to look at hospitality tonight. We're going to look at the gifts of the Spirit next week. As I was looking through this text, I became aware that possibly the biggest obstacle that we have to understanding hospitality is the word itself, the English word itself. Because when we think of being hospitable, the first thing you think of is Martha Stewart, okay? You, you think of Martha Stewart, you think of Southern Living Magazine. Uh, we think of, you know, hospitality is entertaining, you know, entertaining people. And just know that that is much uh, too shallow of a definition for biblical hospitality. It's also a very misleading definition for what the Bible means when we come upon this term. Uh, the Greek word for hospitality is actually a combination of two words. It combines the word love and the word stranger. Love the stranger. That's hospitality. It is not entertaining. And I think we really need to make a distinction between this, especially living you know, in the South here, um, because we do a lot of entertaining. Uh, but entertaining has with it that... Uh, that notion of we're putting on a show. You know, uh, that's really what kind of southern hospitality is. It's showing off the house, you know, showing off the, the, you know, the new kitchen or the new furnishings. Um, now, that's not everything that entertainment, entertaining is, but it certainly is an aspect of what entertaining is. And that's why when you seek to entertain, it can be burdensome. Because pressure is put on you when you're trying to entertain. Because you're not merely having people over for you to get to know. You're having people over for you to get to know and impress. And trying to impress people is what puts the pressure on you. And it becomes a burden. Let me give you a definition of hospitality. Hospitality is inviting a stranger into your living space and treating them like family. Hospitality is inviting in a stranger to your living space and treating them like family. Now notice I didn't say inviting them to your home. I said living space because you don't necessarily have to have a home to be hospitable. Your, your living space is where you go to, uh, to really be you, to, to be yourself, to unwind. Your living space is where uh, you can let your guard down. So everybody has a living space, whether it's you know, a coffee shop, whether it's their apartment, whether it's their home. You have some space that you consider yours, and you are yourself. And to be hospitable is to invite a stranger into this space with you and to treat them like family. At the heart of hospitality is Jesus' words 
I was a stranger and you took me in. Now, Peter in this context is telling us specifically to be hospitable towards those who are of the faith, those within the church that he might have in mind to to open up homes for traveling missionaries, for Bible studies, for, for home groups. They were to be hospitable towards those in the church they didn't know well, but people whom God had said, you're family. You are now family. And this is how they could show love for one another. Uh, But hospitality is not just limited to those within the church. Uh, We have to be hospitable towards those who don't know Christ as well. Actually, this is the best way for us to share the gospel with those who are resistant to it is by having them in our homes. This is why, you know, you have in uh, Hebrews, it says that we are to have show brotherly love towards one another. We're to love those in the church. And it says, but do not neglect being hospitable towards strangers. We show hospitality to those outside the faith as well. Something the church... It's a fairly recent thing the church has started moving towards, but we tend to associate sharing our faith with someone as being the equivalent of inviting them to church. We invite them to church, and that's somehow how we have shared our faith. That's how we evangelize. Yet, for the first 200 years of the church, the church never had a building yet they were exploding in growth as they used their homes. Did you know that in the Bible, we never see Jesus, not even once, inviting someone to come to synagogue with him? But over and over again, you have him inviting himself to their home. I mean, you don't get the, you know, the Zacchaeus, you come down, you're going to church with me today, you know, which is, which is what we would say. Zacchaeus, you come down. I'm going to your house. Jesus had a house. He'd been inviting him to his house. But he's going to be hospitable by going to his house. He's going to talk about theology around a table. Inviting strangers into our homes and living spaces is still the best way to share our faith. Uh, The deepest and most life-transforming truths that Jesus taught, if you look through Scripture, you're going to find that most of them are over a dinner table. And that's where He taught about Himself. He was talking about faith over a meal that changed Rosaria's life. It wasn't being asked to go to church, but it was instead being asked if she'd be interested and getting back together again for another meal. And actually, because she hadn't been asked to go to church, because she hadn't had the gospel crammed down her throat, she actually realized they might be interested in me and not just trying to sell a product. And in her words, she felt safe. Now realize that opening up your living space can be hard to do. All right? Peter, Peter knows this too. I love the last line that he adds in verse 9. It says, Seek to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. 
Peter knows all of you home group leaders so well, all right? He knows what happens in home groups. If you're hosting a home group, that there's going to be grumbling involved there. And he says, be hospitable and don't grumble. But he knows that having people into your house every week, if that's you, is a hard thing to do. It's a demanding thing to do. Peter knows that, but he also knows that the end of all things is at hand. Focus yourself. We're near the end. It's worth it. You need to show love for one another and for the world by being hospitable. I've heard a lot of excuses over the years for why some people are not very hospitable. I've heard a lot of them because I have given a lot of them over the years. You might think that you can't show hospitality because, um, because you live in an apartment, because the layout of your house is not, you know, big enough to have people over. You know, Lauren and I, our first apartment for the first, you know, few years, all we had was wicker furniture inside, not outside. It was wicker furniture, right? You know, you just kind of, you know, you didn't feel like having people over for that. But once again... This isn't an excuse because you're not showing off. That's not the purpose. That's entertaining. You're inviting people into your living space and you're treating them like family. I, I, I've heard, I heard a pastor say that one, this one time. He said that the key to hospitality is to begin it. The key to hospitality is to begin it. Wherever you are in life, whatever stage you are in life, just begin it. Don't wait for a better home. Don't wait for a better set of circumstances. Don't wait till you find your permanent residence. Be hospitable. I've heard the excuse that my house is always a disaster. Uh, well, if, if, if your house is not immaculate, that's okay. If you come to our house, that is what our laundry room or closets are for, okay? You know, people come in and are like, wow, your house is so clean. You, you can't even open the door of some of our rooms because we just throw everything in there. Hospitality does not mean that you have to get all the laundry off the floor in order to have people over. Hospitality might even mean that you have people over and you get them to help you fold laundry. <laughs> you know, that, that happened to, uh, to Lauren uh, two weeks ago. Somebody was over, and uh, Lauren had to do a ton of laundry, but she also wanted to talk to, to this lady who came over. She's like, well, you, will you sit down and help fold laundry? And when it spoke was not, wow, you're, you're making me do this. It was like, I know you're busy, and yet you're making time for me any way you can. And so I come down, and I, I see this woman here folding up my underwear. I'm like, wow, we have reached a new stage <laughs> in our relationship. But as they're just folding clothes, they get to talk. That's treating somebody like family. That's what that's doing. Hospitality might even mean that if you have somebody, you know, you have people come over and it's time to clean up afterwards and they say, can I, can I help with the dishes? You don't say, no, no, I got it. And then when they leave, you grumble. Gosh, I got all this stuff here. I got to clean up. And, and that's when, you know, you and your wife or whoever, you're just, you're fighting at this point. 
why don't you say, that'd be great. Treat them like family. Well, what I have found is over the years, it's those times where now I'm washing dishes with somebody who I've had come over. That is the best time for getting to know somebody. That's the time when truly their guard is down and we're just living life with one another. So can we help? Yes, please help. Wash dishes, that'd be great. I'd love to talk with you some more. Another excuse might be that you don't have enough money or you do not have enough time to be hospitable. I'll be blunt. You need to change your priorities. You need to change your priorities. The end of all things is at hand. And I bet that there are certain things in your life that take up a lot of time and take up a lot of money that are just fluff. You could do away with. This week I was reading through 1 Timothy And I could not believe the importance that Paul placed on hospitality when he was writing this letter to Timothy. Uh, The situation is this. In chapter 5, there's a number of widows that are at the church. And these widows need help. And so what they could do is they could enroll in a program at the church. And if they were part of this program, the, the church, they would give their benevolence funds to them. They would... They would buy them some food or clothing or whatever they needed if they would enroll in the church. And Paul, he writes to Timothy, he says, don't just let any widow who's at the church do this. Don't just give the money out to any of them. And so he he lists all of these things that the widow is supposed to do. He says in chapter 5, he says, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works if she's brought up children and has shown hospitality, if she's washed the feet of the saints, if she has cared for the afflicted, if she has devoted herself to every good work, then let her be enrolled. I'll be blunt again. There is not a person here that I know of, maybe there is, but not a person that I know of here who is worse off than a first century widow. Hard living as a widow in the first century. You you are destitute. If you're a widow, you're likely not going to have any money or really any means of making money. You're probably trying to live in somebody else's house. Maybe you're lucky enough to have a house of your own, but it certainly wouldn't be anything large. And Paul says this, if you're going to ask for funds from the church, you better be hospitable. Otherwise, we see giving to you as wasting our money. Because the church is called to be a hospitable people. We're always to be inviting the stranger in. It's our calling. There are no excuses. Now, the reason that we are called to be hospitable people is because this reflects the gospel. Not only was Jesus always eating and drinking with sinners, always sharing his faith over a meal, but we read in Ephesians 2, it says that we too once were strangers. We were alienated from God, and yet he brought us in. 
and he has made us family. It's the gospel. God has been hospitable to us, and now we are hospitable to others. Let me end with a challenge. I challenge every one of you this month to identify somebody, a stranger that you can invite in. Somebody that you can have come over to your living space, share a meal together. I don't go anywhere beyond that. I'm not saying what you have to say, what you have to do. Just be hospitable. Invite someone who doesn't know the Lord, a stranger over, and have a meal with them and treat them like family. Always being sensitive to where the Spirit might lead this. I believe that's our calling as Christians, and I believe that's our calling as a church. Pray with me. Lord, we were not just strangers. We were enemies. We weren't walking towards you. We were running away from you. Yet you pursued us and you drew us to yourself. You treated us like family. You made us family. So God, we just say thanks. We say praise you. Praise you, Jesus, for your work. I I ask that in this moment, in this congregation here, that uh, through the power of your spirit, you would press in on us in a way that only you can press in on us, that the end of all things is at hand and that we would wake up, realize this life isn't a joke. We would, our prayers would reflect that, the way we love one another would reflect that, and our hospitality would reflect that. Lord, make that a reality for us. May we be a light shining in a dark place. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.